0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Marsha Jo author of the book, Jews of Florida, Centuries of Stories, and founding director of the Jewish Museum of Florida.
1: I think we've made a major contribution to Florida history, and hopefully have inspired other ethnic groups to do the same.
0: We'll discuss Miami
2: jewel thief Harry Sittimore. The criminal career of Harry Sittimore demanded the wealth and chaos of the Florida land boom.
0: And talk about a new book of op-ed pieces by historian David Colburn and Senator Bob Graham. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Conversos, Jews who publicly converted to Christianity under the threat of the Spanish Inquisition, probably came to Florida in the 1500s and continued practicing their religion secretly. Spanish records list people with Sephardic Jewish names among the first settlers of St. Augustine. Jewish people could not legally live in Florida until 1763, which is when Alexander Solomon, Joseph de Palacios, and Samuel Israel immigrated to Pensacola. This fascinating history and much more is preserved at the Jewish Museum of Florida in Miami Beach. Long before the museum came into existence, founding executive director Marsha Jo Zervetz began a quest to collect and document Jewish history throughout Florida.
1: I moved to Florida in 1960, I'd always been involved in the organized Jewish community, and was rather horrified that there was no documentation of Jewish history in Florida. I couldn't understand that. I was involved nationally, and everywhere I traveled, I would meet with other women, and we talked about why we were involved, and they were involved because their mothers or their grandmothers or their aunts, somebody in the family had been involved, and I'm thinking, the Jews in Florida are really bereft of a history. There has to be something. We talk about Jewish continuity. How can you have continuity if you don't have a past? So I started asking a lot of questions because I tend to do that. And uh, to my horror, no one had ever researched or documented it at all. The scholars up east considered Florida not important for Florida Jewish history. They assumed it began on Miami Beach after World War II, and that was the beginning and the end. So I said, no, 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 there's got to be more to it. So I actually started a fabulous personal adventure that I think has benefited the entire state, not just the Jewish community, but the totally multi-ethnic community that we have, because the story that we are telling is of the immigrant experience. And I think some people tend to forget that all of us are of immigrant stock of some generation. Someone came from another place to America and to Florida. So I started an eight-year adventure. I traveled around the state, starting with Pensacola to Key West, and a lot of people don't realize that's a 1,000 miles. We're a very long state. And I met with people in each community, volunteers, lay, lay people, and I said, we need to research and document the history, the Jewish history of your community. And people would constantly say, oh, there's no history here. And I said, well, whatever it is, we want to retrieve it.
0: Zarevitz organized teams of volunteers in 13 Jewish communities around the state, including Pensacola, Tallahassee, Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa, Miami, and Key West. She learned how to conduct interviews from oral historian Samuel Proctor at the University of Florida. For eight years, Zarevitz and her team of volunteers collected stories, photographs, and artifacts. Zarevitz then assembled a team of professionals to help her create a touring exhibition called Mosaic, Jewish Life in Florida. After opening at the Historical Museum of Southern Florida in Miami in October 1990, the mosaic exhibit traveled to venues including the Flagler Museum in St. Augustine, the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee, and the T.T. Wentworth Museum in Pensacola, introducing audiences to Florida's Jewish history.
1: We did not even know at the time that Jews could not live in Florida for 250 years after Florida was discovered. Only Catholics could live here from the time Ponce de Leon discovered Florida in 1513 until after the French-Indian War when the Treaty of Paris was signed in Paris, France in November of, or December of 1762. That was when Florida was traded from the Spanish to the British, and the British, desperate for settlement, allowed anyone to settle, including Jews. So it so happens that that same treaty gave Louisiana, took it away from the French and gave it to the Spanish. So Jews who were living in New Orleans, for example, had to leave because Jews could not live anywhere in the world under Spanish rule. And three of them went to Pensacola, Florida in 1763. So that was the beginning of documented Jewish life in Florida. We also found out that Florida was brought into statehood in 1845, the 27th state, by David Levi Yule, a Jew first person of Jewish ancestry to even serve in the United States Congress, but who knew? So we have had more than 250 Jewish mayors. In other words, we have contributed, we as a Jewish community, have contributed greatly to every area of development of Florida, but nobody knew the stories. So this exhibit became very popular, and people along the way would say, you know, you've been wandering Jews long enough. People knew, even non-Jewish people know the term wandering Jews, So they said, you need to find a permanent home. Obviously, everything you've collected, I had collected about 6,000 photos and documents and artifacts, wasn't everything. So they said, you need a home.
0: In the mid-1990s, the Jewish Museum of Florida found a home in what had been Miami Beach's first synagogue in 1929 and an Orthodox synagogue next door built in 1936. Marcia Jozarowicz led the restoration of the buildings in 1993.
1: We're sitting now in a 1936 Art Deco designed by Henry Hohauser, the most prominent of the Art Deco architects, designed this building in 1936 as the second synagogue for the first Jewish congregation on Miami Beach that started in 1929 in the building which we now own next door. But we started in this primary building, the 80 stained glass windows, a Moorish copper dome, a sloping floor. Had a lot of challenges because how do you create a museum with a sloping floor and stained glass windows all over? But we were able to do it and uh, we opened, we raised the money. The building was about to be torn down, I should mention. The buildings are both on the National Register of Historic Places, but our city was letting them being torn down. So I went to the city immediately to get a moratorium against tearing them down. I said, give me six months to see if I can raise the money. So we did raise the money, and we restored this building. And we opened in 1995, and were extremely successful in telling the story of the immigrant experience being focused on the Jewish story, but the acculturation process of everyone's family.
0: The exhibition, Mosaic, Jewish Life in Florida, makes up the core of the Jewish Museum of Florida. A timeline at the front of the museum places Florida's Jewish history in a national and international context. Documents, photographs, and artifacts are displayed, including the watch belonging to George Dolinsky of Jacksonville.
1: Who is the first known Jewish boy born in Florida in 1857. Now, there are several reasons why I like that watch. First of all, on, on the back it has a relief of Moses holding the Ten Commandments. It's a beautiful artifact. And the, the numerals, the, the, the hours are in, in Hebrew, Yiddish letters. But uh, the significance of the fact that the first known Jewish boy born in Florida was so proud of his Jewish heritage that he carried this watch his whole life, and that it speaks loudly to the fact that, yes, Jews were here that early. He wasn't the first child that we know of born in Florida. There was a Jewish girl born in Pensacola. Yeah, Virginia Myers in 1822, but we don't have anything of her. We have a picture of George, and we have this artifact.
0: In addition to collecting Jewish history in Florida, creating the Mosaic Exhibition, and establishing the Jewish Museum of Florida, Marcia Jozerwitz is author of the book Jews of Florida, Centuries of Stories, published in 2020 by the History Press. She also co-wrote the Florida Jewish Heritage Trail, published by the Florida Department of State, which identifies 250 sites of historic significance.
1: If I have to think of a community that is just so interesting that people don't think about it, it's Ocala. Because Ocala was, there were phosphate mines there in the early days. That's where troop trains for the Spanish-American War went through there to take troops to Tampa to sail to Cuba. Uh, there's so much early history there. And there was a really, proportionate to the size of the population, a very large Jewish community there. Uh, That we've had mayors, we've had school superintendents, uh, the houses of many of these people are still there. We had a state legislator, for example, Marcus Frank, who was on the city council for 40 years in Ocala, went on to become a legislator. And who would have known these stories if we hadn't done all this research with all these volunteer grassroots people all over the state? So I think we've made a major contribution to Florida history and hopefully have inspired other ethnic groups to do the same.
0: With so many immigrants in our state, the Jewish Museum of Florida serves as an inspiration to everyone. The museum demonstrates the importance of documenting individual, family and community histories.
1: We have children in our public schools here in Miami-Dade County from 155 different nations. In Miami Beach High School alone, we have children from 64 countries that speak 31 languages. Huge challenge for teachers. But the point here is that, again, that everyone is an immigrant and that each person needs to have the pride of knowing that they're part of America and part of Florida, not to be treated as you know, a second-class citizen. The the students that come here for field trips ranked us number one in the whole county as their favorite field trip because when they come here, they feel at home because we talk about the immigrant experience and we facilitate discussions with them about where did their families come from and why and what did they bring with them and what traditions did they bring that they had to acculturate to a new society? So as again, it's it's a generic story, and that's why I think it's so important. And as you can tell, I feel very passionate about what we do.
0: Marcia Josevitz is founding executive director of the Jewish Museum of Florida in Miami Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit our content-rich website, myfloridahistory.org, anytime to watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the story of the Miami land boom in the 1920s is one that includes a number of tales of theft and fraud, but the story of Harry Sittimore is not one that involves the sale of swampland.
2: The criminal career of Harry Sittimore demanded the wealth and chaos of the Florida land boom. So it seems appropriate to start with the boom itself. Although the Florida land boom of the 1920s seemed to explode onto the national scene out of nowhere, historians point to years of infrastructure construction from the railroads to the Dixie Highway, the rise of consumerism with its manifestation of what economist Thorsten Veblen called conspicuous consumption, and the positive economic position of the United States following World War I. The land boom that followed seemed convincing evidence that the American dream was in reach for everyone, and at least for a few years, it all seemed possible. We know the end of this story, but let's focus on the heyday years. Florida and Miami had attracted the wealthy for decades, and as transportation and the economy improved, middle-class Americans joined the periodic flights to the nation's own subtropical paradise, an exotic area with a reputation for the naughty that remained safely within the United States jurisdiction, as historian Julio Capo has noted. The advent of the land boom added a new layer to Miami's lure, one that encouraged the very wealthy and the adequately leveraged to construct palaces on the sand and bring with them all the evidence of their wealth, jewels, fine clothes, antique furniture, and art. Along with the ostentatious demonstrations of wealth, a criminal element appeared that included a class system of its own, Ranging from the low-level pickpockets and sneak thieves to rum runners and nationally known criminals such as Al Capone, these men and some women operated within networks that placed them in positions to perpetuate their crimes while passing as respected members of society. Indeed, a part of the adventure of spending time in South Florida included the possibility of catching sight of America's new criminal nobility.
0: Connie, how did Harry Sittimore fit into this criminal hierarchy?
2: Harry Sittimore was a jewel thief who self-identified as New York's Prince of Thieves. When he was arrested in Miami in March 1933, he had over 110 pieces of jewelry valued at between 250000 and a half million dollars. Among the recovered items was a $60,000 necklace stolen from opera singer, movie star, and Tennessee nightingale Grace Moore. According to the Miami Herald, this was believed to be only part of his springtime haul. Indeed, Siddamore has largely been forgotten, but in the 1920s and 30s, he attained status as a self- and media-style celebrity hero, as infamous as the widely written-about organized crime figures of the Prohibition-era Northeast and Midwestern bandits and bank robbers, according to historian Vivian Miller. Her article on Sidimore appeared in the winter 2009 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly and taps into a larger historiography on crime and policing in Miami. Sittemore first arrived in Miami in the early 1920s, perhaps lured by the boom chaos, as well as the vision of Carl Fisher from Miami Beach as an exclusive upper-class genteel-gentile resort and residential community to rival Palm Beach. As Miller notes, Sinemore's identity as a jewel thief placed him in a small elite group of professional criminals who targeted specific privileged and high-profile individuals for their diamonds, emeralds, and other precious stones, the most ostentatious symbols of individual wealth. Professional thieves were proud of their skills and drew distinctions between themselves and common burglars who stole a range of items. Criminals like Sydamore were male and white, able to blend into elite society in order to carry out their crimes without attracting unwanted attention. Reportedly a spiffy dresser with all the appearances of a gentleman of leisure, Siddemore had more than 150 keys in his possession at the time of his arrest. He claimed to be able to open anything in Miami. After his arrest and photograph in the Miami Herald, He acquired a transnational fan club of people who compared him to the gentleman jewel thief A.J. Raffles, created by British writer E.W. Hornan. Harry considered himself to be highly intelligent and incapable of being caught by Miami's police, who he considered bumbling and inept. Perhaps all jewel thieves have this opinion of their superiority over the police, but Sittimore's view may have been bolstered by his own pre criminal life history as an accountant and the son of a small manufacturer, social positions that suggested social mobility and some education. His view was not supported by his own rap sheet, however. Under various aliases, he had numerous arrest warrants for crimes ranging from pickpocketing to breaking and entering and jewelry store robberies. He was well known to New York and Miami police. How did
0: the police eventually catch Siddamore?
2: In the pre-dawn hours, a joint team consisting of two New York City police officers, four Miami detectives, uniformed officers, and representatives of the Knoll, Scaffa, and Pinkerton detective agencies knocked on the door of the rented Miami Beach bungalow Siddemore shared with his wife and five-year-old son. Siddemore confessed after seven hours of interrogation. The police believed Harry had an accomplice who fed him information to facilitate the robberies, but the newspapers actually made all the information he needed readily available. According to Miller, March was party month in Miami Beach, and the daily papers reported on who was in the city, where they were staying, and occasionally provided aerial views of the homes of the rich and famous. They also printed handy lists of parties and events and who was expected to attend. Finally, they photographed these tropical visitors in all their jeweled glory. As it turned out, Siddamore did have a finger man for at least one heist. Charles Yacht, a professional golfer at a beach hotel, confessed to providing information to Siddamore about the jewelry and cash that was subsequently stolen from Mrs. Bertha Glimley on March 13th. Suspicion fell on Yacht as a known friend of Harry because he had taken Ms. Glimley's niece to the Greyhound races at a time he knew the aunt would be away. Yacht provided the police with Harry's address.
0: Well, Connie, how did Harry's story end?
2: not well. He pleaded guilty to the theft and was sentenced to three consecutive terms of 20 years each, leading some to speculate that he had crossed judicial officials and was being punished for his failure to share the loot. Two months after arriving at Rayford Prison, he escaped and fled to New Orleans. Five months later, the dapper Harry surrendered to a Pinkerton detective and was returned to prison and placed in solitary confinement. He made two additional escape attempts in 1934 and 1935. According to the Florida prison superintendent, it required five years of punishment and discipline for Harry to become convinced that he was not bigger than the state of Florida. In 1947, he was released from prison, and in 1953, he was arrested for disorderly conduct in Miami Beach. In 1959, he was identified as the sweater man casing a jewelry store that was later robbed. As Miller concludes, it seems that only infirmity or death would halt the Prince of Thieves, as the 64-year-old Centimore had no intention of quietly retiring to the French or any other Riviera.
0: A fascinating story. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. (music) This is Florida Frontiers. A new book of op-ed pieces by historian David Colburn and Senator Bob Graham offers insight into 30 years of Florida history. History student Sebastian Garcia from the University of Central Florida has more. Dr. Stephen
3: Knoll is an instructional professor at the University of Florida. He has written and published several books about disability, environmental, and political history in Florida and in the U.S. I spoke with him about his most recent book, Writing for the Public Good, Essays from David R. Colburn and Senator Bob Graham, which was published in April of 2022. David R. Colburn was a provost, senior vice president, professor of history, and director of the Bob Graham Center for Public Service, all at the University of Florida. Bob Graham was the governor of Florida from 1979 to 1987, and a U.S. senator from Florida from 1987 to 2005. In 2006, he established the Bob Graham Center for Public Service. This book contains over 150 op-eds from David R. Colburn and Senator Bob Graham that were published in most Florida and some national newspapers over the course of the past 30 years. As Dr. Noah explained, all three that were involved including himself, had different but ultimately very similar inspirations and motives for the book.
4: For Senator Governor Graham and Colburn, the rationale was kind of a retrospective of their public perceptions of what's going on in America for the past 30 years. You know, David, certainly as an academic historian, had written lots of academic books. Senator Graham, as a United States senator, had been involved in the public process for a long time, and they felt that they needed to kind of talk about their relationship with the general public. And uh, that was through their multiple newspaper op eds for 30 years. And for me, it was A, to get this work out, especially under the circumstances that we're in today regarding public discourse, but also to honor Governor Senator Graham and especially to honor David. I think it's a fitting capstone to his career.
3: Being the editor of such a unique book presented distinct challenges, tasks, and opportunities for Dr. Noel.
4: The first thing, They had been in the process of picking out op-ed pieces that they thought were the best ones over the long course of their experience doing this in a variety of Florida, mostly Florida, but some national papers. And they had organized them somewhat. And then I had to add ones that I thought were good, maybe take out some of the ones that I didn't think were as good as they thought. With each structural part, I had to write an introduction to the particular area. environment, race, politics, gubernatorial. But then I also was tasked with, and I thought this was really important, an introduction to the entire book, in my words, as to A, why it's important now, B, the contribution of Colbert and Graham to this genre, C, the status of newspaper op-eds in the changing journalistic world that we live in. And D, I think the key to understanding discourse in a world in which people aren't talking to each other, they're talking past each other, and they're not listening, they're throwing bombs, literally, as well as figuratively. The biggest challenge for me was to do right by them. So that was my focus, was to make them feel that this book was a positive reflection of their contribution. Also, I wanted to make sure that it was a historical analysis of the past 30 years of Florida history. So I made sure that things that were particular to a time period that the reader today would not feel that was so important would probably not be in the book that the things that were written in the 1990s would have resonance still today.
3: That contemporaneous nature of their op-eds presented in the book was a significant overarching theme, no matter what specific topic they were addressing at the moment. Politics, the economy, race, population demographics, the environment, and so on. This was a product of Colburn and Graham contextualizing Florida's contemporary world, problems and solutions with historical insight.
4: What they, in their op-ed pieces, tried to do and what I tried to do in contextualizing is to show people that where we are today in Florida is not only a reflection of what's happening contemporaneously, but what has happened in the past, not just 30 years, but in the past 100 years. They really tried to focus on the fact that Florida's history is really an important part of Florida's present and its a part that a vast majority of the public doesn't know or doesn't care about. So they're really interested in trying to get them to understand that, as was I.
3: A significant theme throughout almost all of their op-eds was civic literacy and civic engagement through education and other means in Florida. Dr. Noel emphasized this early in the book, stating that all the op-eds deal with a variety of issues, but ultimately, quote, they all focus on one thing, the importance of an informed, involved, and diverse citizenry, end quote.
4: Certainly their mission through the Graham Center, through their public awareness, and through the op-eds and through this book is to say civic engagement matters significantly. And not only important, but that they were being lost in the larger mission, and not just of, of K-12 education, but college education as well. They would point out that where we are today Is a direct result of our lack of civic engagement and civic literacy.
3: When asked if every modern-day Floridian should read this book, Dr. Knoll said
4: that was their goal, and that was my goal: to have it read by your uncle, have it read by school teachers, have it read by doctors, people who wouldn't necessarily read this kind of stuff, have it read by insurance agents, you know, have it read by Car salesman, have it read by air conditioning repairman. That's the goal here that, that Floridians need to read this and reflect upon the state of the state. What's important about the book is that there's some pretty dark places that they talk about here. But in spite of that, they maintain this very almost Pollyanna esque belief that Floridians can and will do the right thing. And I think that that's really important. And, and their notion of doing the right thing is that they become engaged and involved.
3: Floridians would be doing themselves a favor by reading this book. Doing so would exercise their civic duty that Graham and Colburn envisioned for the state and its people. As David Colburn wrote in 1993, it is imperative that we, quote, acknowledge our state's past and those who have preceded us and recognize both their achievements and their failures. Each is essential in helping us to mature as a people and as a state. End quote. For Florida Frontiers, I am Sebastian Garcia, an undergraduate history student at the University of Central Florida.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester, Holly Baker, and this week, Sebastian Garcia. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State, Division of Historical Resources, and the State of Florida, It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at RossiterHouseMuseum.org.